Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In a June report I helped co-author with Paul Barrett, Deputy Director of the NYU Stern School of Business Center for Business and Human Rights, we noted something that observers of the major tech firms often point out about YouTube, that the massive social video sharing platform has received a disproportionately less amount of scrutiny from journalists, social scientists, politicians, and civil society groups. Legal scholar Evelyn Dweck calls YouTube's uncanny ability to escape the kind of attention that Facebook draws its magic dust. But there are those who do pay very close attention to the company, and today we're going to hear from one of them, Bloomberg journalist and author Mark Bergen. He's the author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination from Viking Press. This is a business book, a history, and a contemplation of YouTube's role in society all in one. Bergen explores how the company evolved into the massive juggernaut it is today, and along the way gives insight into concerning phenomena that we've discussed on this podcast in the past, such as the relationship between YouTube and violent extremism, misogyny, racism, white nationalism, and a variety of other ills. The book pulls the curtain back on the internal dynamics and decisions that bring us to today, and it asks us to contemplate whether anyone, from Google's leadership to regulators and any of the world's governments, can truly get their heads or hands around YouTube. Here's Mark. Mark Bergen. I'm a reporter uh, with Bloomberg News and the author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. So just after a very sweet dedication to your partner and before the table of contents of this book, there are two quotes. One's from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So much has been done, exclaimed the soul of Frankenstein. More, far more will I achieve treading in the steps already marked. I will pioneer a new way, explore unknown powers, and unfold to the world the deepest mysteries of creation. And the second one's from someone that many of my listeners may not be familiar with, Logan Paul. And that quote is, it was going to be a joke. This was all going to be a joke. Why did it become so real? Why did you start with these two quotes? I wanted to hit it maybe two on the nose a little bit with the, I, I think the story of YouTube in many ways is Frankenstein's story. It's a, they created this monster that they couldn't control being, being the platform. And I think what's most fascinating about YouTube is unlike a lot of other social companies and, and networks, it's really not run by like one founder and sort of controlled uh, by a monolith. And it's been like, it's gone through three different chief executives. There were two founders that left really early. Uh, and so in, like the, just by then structurally how it works, it's sort of like this, the platform is this, this monster that the company is always trying to tame. Uh, and then the Logan Paul incident, which I'm happy to get into was one of these, it happened uh, during the holidays. The scandal was he showed a a dead body hanging in this suicide forest in Japan became briefly one of the most popular videos on YouTube and uh, a real inflection point for for the company trying to handle out-of-control creators. And at that point, they made a series of changes from that incident, like still having repercussions today. So we'll get a little bit uh, into, of course, you know, how we got there. Um, but, you know, when I read that Logan Paul quote, it reminded me of a 
a scene in the HBO documentary on QAnon, Q into the Storm, where Jim Watkins is marching down Pennsylvania Avenue with a bunch of other uh, MAGA supporters on January 6th, marveling at how all this online phenomena has played out in real life. And in this book, I feel like there's this constant thing of, A, it's an amazing history of, of course, the company and the business of YouTube, but it's also, you know, just a kind of endless set of reminders of these crazy pop culture phenomena that come in and out. I, I mean, the, the, the Logan Paul thing, there could be an entire book just about, about Logan Paul. Um, but the, 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 what was so fascinating to me is like, he's just this really prime example of like someone who you, he was sort of raised on, on YouTube, which is interesting. Like the early, early generation of YouTube was sort of this response to the TV and traditional media and Logan Paul is part of this generation, Gen Z, you know, not like the TikTok generation, but that like came up and, and it's this idea that like influencers and being creator and making money on the internet was sort of a given and something you could strive for and sort of had this neat understanding of like the spectacle and what works and like operate with this sort of level of ironic detachment um, that makes it really difficult to see how when they're being sincere and right he's you know like very much a youtube star in the sense of like what we talk about parasocial relations right like people a lot of teens that that watch people like logan paul think they know him um and it's, it's like it's not a social network in the sense that you you know the posts you see are not from people you actually know um, but they are from people that you have these more i think more uh, meaningful relationships with than watching george clooney right and and in youtube grew in the sense because they'd like let these creators run wild and do things that that never would have appeared on broadcast tv and then unleash like all sorts of wonderful new forms of creativity and invention uh and then had these you know consequences that the company uh, didn't have these safeguards in and it's just like one of, of many uh examples where where that just like become pretty obvious the book is in many ways a history a chronology of youtube across the last well now 17 years but you take us back to 2005 when the founders of youtube like mark zuckerberg uh, are apparently inspired by a website hot or not as well as other nascent social media what was in the cultural and the engineering stew in those early days of youtube yeah certainly like online dating just on so much of the of the modern internet this was a time there was, I think there's a phrase in the, in the, in the book about like the companies were sort of like sharks turning uh, in the water, the smell of blood, like the YouTube founders had come out, all, all, three of them had all worked at PayPal and PayPal was sort of famous for uh, doing this, this pivot, right? They started off as mobile security software, they pivoted to, to payments and then they became PayPal. Uh, and then there was this you know, famous PayPal mafia, Elon Musk and, and uh, the founders of LinkedIn and Yelp. Right. Um, it was this really early stage of, of the Web 2.0. And I think something that sort of gets wasn't really appreciated. I didn't fully understand is, is like we talk a lot about Uber as sort of this classic example of we're going to like operate in this like legal gray zone and we're going to like do something and then ask for permission later. Right. Or like ask for forgiveness or later rather than permission. And I, I think YouTube is a really great example of this where these companies that like we're operating in these like gray zones like around copyright and ip but just leaned in and like went really hard and we're like that was sort of the you know the history of like we're gonna put things up we don't necessarily like they when they first operated didn't have a lawyer 
on staff when they started and had like a clear understand, like a, a, a somewhat understanding of, of copyright law, um, but went in with this sort of gusto that, you know, a big company, in this case, Google and Microsoft that were, that had like competing products uh, were much more reserved and, and YouTube could took these risks that, that arguably like led to, to their success. Uh, there was also this culture of like very like live journal, early internet, like hacker culture, uh, where the internet was this respite from corporate media, from government censorship. Uh, like this was the Bush era, right? This was, um, and I get into this a little bit in the book of like some of the founding team who worked at YouTube came up in this, in this, this culture, either worked for, around, or with the EFF and, and that scene. And I think we're... Um, really important in shaping the, the platform. And then, you know, later on, it gets much thornier when, when it, and, and changes a little bit when, they, when, when YouTube joins Google. So one of the things I was struck by in looking back that far at 2005 was the fact that, you know, YouTube's form sort of came into being almost at once. Uh, and it really is sort of somewhat the same today. I mean, there must be, and we'll talk about this, a lot more going on on the back end. But, you know, you talk about, how uh, the trio, Chad Hurley, Steve Chen, Jawed Kareem, you point out that they, you know, essentially added a, a set of features, the ability for people to leave comments, a small button to share the videos, and then this idea that when someone clicks a video, a row of related ones appears, uh, prompting them to watch some more. I mean, in many ways, the form was there from the beginning. I think that's true. I mean, you know, YouTube hasn't really... The, the core product hasn't really changed in its entire, like, uh, yeah, 17, 17 years. I did think there was something, you know, some of this is a little bit, people I talked to, maybe the historical revisionism a bit, but but there was, at the time, there was a bit more, like, if you think about Flickr was another company that around that time that got sold to Yahoo before YouTube joined, joined Google and was sort of an inspiration and for YouTube and certainly for YouTube investors that were like, that, that uh, validated the, their business. But there was an idea that this was an online community of people, like a lot of the, the, the assumption, and, and early on, I think it was largely the case, people that were making videos were also the ones watching, and it was a pretty tight-knit community, right? And very different today than where most people using YouTube are not uploading videos uh, or trying to be online creators. There was a much bigger overlap, and it, there, was, there was more of, you know, these are online communities. Um, and I think just the framing and thinking about that really has a lot of impact on the decisions they made. You know, one sort of interesting example is like, there was a feature that YouTube spun out over a weekend, according to people I talked to, like uh, response videos to actually like put video replies in the comments, which, you know, today I imagine would be a nightmare to, to moderate. But uh, at the time, it was like sort of a social feature. And I think that you know, there are a lot of the social features and interactions got have been like were stripped away and and perhaps that's sort of in, in in a way partly why why YouTube's not really seen as social media today. But I think that there was a, a certainly different outlook and approach to the company uh, back then. It's not only uh, that form function that seems to be there from the beginning, uh, but right around the time that Sequoia comes in big with you know big investment, we start to see some of the first kind of real problematic content arrive on YouTube and YouTube's first go at content moderation. You tell the story of this woman, uh, Julie Mora Blanco, uh, who sees a video she would never forget. 
Yeah, this was, I mean, they were kind of like the front line, the first front line of, of um, content moderation. Right? It didn't really exist on the internet. I mean, it did, uh, you know, Julie is a really good example. These were part of the, the YouTube uh, squad. Uh, there's a great anecdote I'll share from the book is that they, in, in the first YouTube's first office, they were like, just happened to be sitting, they hired these, these people to do you know, content moderation and they put them in the front of the office. And then it was after they had a few visitors and they realized like, okay, we need to buy like screen, those industrial size screeners to like, so see no one else can see the screen. And then maybe we shouldn't put these people in the front of the office. Um, but it, I thought it was just like this really uh, great metaphor for, you know, like uh, flash forward a few years and now the screeners are sitting in like uh, the Philippines and India and, and, and Ireland and working for companies not called, not called Google, right? But so, but, but I think that it, that is valuable in the sense that like they were much more integrated with the, especially when YouTube was a smaller team, like decision-making. And it was it, admittedly like the processes weren't, weren't in place as, as they, like they are today of like this sort of, massive operation with lots of like lawyers and protocols but it was you know they were making they were writing some of these initial rules and i think being like fairly thoughtful at the time uh about you know how they wanted to deal with things you know, at the time this was before this idea of like misinformation was was really a, a thing but that, that they were you know another example that that i cited in the book is like a, a videos about phrenology um and like talking about a, a basically shot as documentaries um, talking about the science behind it. Right. And it's um, at the time that I think Julie was took, decided to mark that video for deletion, you know, YouTube sort of early on built this um, exemption for documentary scientific uh, educational videos. And there were uh, a lot of really fascinating debates. And, and, and I think it's kind of hard to, to even imagine that there was no, guidebook or precedents for a lot of these decisions they were making. Micah Schaefer, who was one of the early YouTube policy leaders that they hired, uh, had uh, he came kind of had worked around the EFF and some of the experience, my understanding is like like early live journal culture, right? Um, and there was a really key, YouTube was actually pretty early in, in setting a policy around um, eating disorders and content around eating disorders because Micah had seen that on live journal and in those online discussions right and i think that you know the the, the team would kind of parouse uh 4chan uh and there was a a moment i forget when exactly when on 4chan a bunch of people planned to like we're gonna do a, a coordinated attack and just like flood youtube with porn and and this was you know early on porn was like a really big problem for youtube before they like built up the system and for for detection uh, and the team was able to flag that because they spent time, like they knew where to hang out on these like backwater forums and the internet. You take us through the early history of YouTube. I mean, it's everything from Hollywood to Viacom ads, ad tech, uh, the copyright wars, uh, and then ultimately acquisition. And it's interesting to me that the strategy to buy YouTube emerges from Google's failures around video, uh, and in particular, Susan Wojcicki's failures around video. Yeah, there's what the Silicon Valley phrase, uh, buy or build, and, uh, or I guess it's build or buy. And Google started, um, initially tried with Google Video, which was a product that actually started off as sort of like a, a very googly thing. It was just going to do uh, caption TV, sort of make a searchable index of TV captions. And then they they moved over to, to um, 
user-generated video and, and pretty gingerly um, at the time, like they were actually screening, which is hard to believe, but they were like screening the videos in advance, right? Um, because they just thought that was the the only way to avoid liabilities. So Susan Wojcicki was in the book one of a few that the staff would kind of joke and call her like a mini CEO, right? These these product managers, Marissa Mayer was another one that it basically did a lot of the day-to-day operations. And Wojcicki oversaw a bunch of different products, but including, including Google Video. She talked about this later on in interviews that she was had the foresight to, to sort of identify YouTube as this cultural phenomenon. Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO, uh, was also like instrumental in that deal. I think the most interesting thing to me was, you know, Larry and Sergey, uh, the founders of Google, uh, were obviously back much more involved than they are today. You know, for them, YouTube is search. It was a search property and it was a growing search property. They knew, like everyone else involved in tech, that, that video could, after text, video could be the next big thing on the internet. And uh, it's not talked about enough today, but YouTube is the world's second biggest search engine remain, and behind Google, right? And that was, I think, the primary drive, one of the primary driving interests in, in why Google, Google bought them. And right around this moment, you know, you, you, you sort of talk about this idea that uh, one of the early founders, Hurley, who you say ran YouTube like someone who used YouTube, uh, quite a lot. He steps aside and things start to happen Google's way, spreadsheets, algorithms, and the company's now more run by people who don't actually spend much time watching YouTube. Uh, but right around this time, uh, a street vendor in Tunis sets himself ablaze. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Arab Spring was this fascinating moment um, for a variety of reasons. So, so yeah, to set the stage like that that Google had, I think there's two different versions of the story. Um, they're both you know slightly true. One is that yeah, the people that came in from Google were were much more sort of googly, right? Spreadsheets and algorithms, um, scale sort of not familiar with uh, with internet culture as as much, and not not certainly not familiar with like uh, the app, like media. But YouTube was not a, a commercial success, right? There was no clear business model. It was this sort of also ran. There was this, this heavy PyCom lawsuit still lingering until until 2010. And, and these new managers that came over from Google were like, they were trying to whip it into commercial shape and actually like make it a viable uh, a product. And I think there there was this fear, um, legitimate fear there that like, if we don't do this, like Google might, you know, let this thing die on the vine. Uh, you, you know, it was, it was definitely part of the staple of pop culture by then, but it's no guaranteed for success. Uh, Arab Spring was one of these major turning points. Um, you know, like Facebook and Twitter, uh, YouTube saw. Uh, you know, we are basically the the only media that's coming out of uh, many of these countries, and it I think did a couple of things. One is sort of legitimize them in the, in the face of traditional media. You know, this is great anecdote where like CNN CNN producer calls up someone on YouTube and is like, how how did like how did you get that footage? Uh, it demonstrates they didn't quite understand YouTube, and then like you know, CNN couldn't couldn't get into to this was in Iran, so before the the Arab Spring, so I, there was you know another, and I'm happy to love to talk about this more, but this was still a time at YouTube, but they were kind of experimenting and, and a little bit more willing to do what I would call a, a, like editorial work. So there's a, there's a storyline in the book that I think is uh, and really important is that, that YouTube partnered with this company called Storyful, uh, which some of your audience might remember. There was this digital newsroom that came up around the Arab Spring and did a lot of work on on verifying um, footage and um, invested the time and energy to like, like sift through the, this extreme um, uptick in social media output around the Arab Spring 
and actually confirm uh, the validity of the, of the um, in, in YouTube footage or Facebook posts or Twitter, which was like a heavy lift. And I think, you know, so much of the book is like this, this uh, um, alternative vision of like what could have been for YouTube and the internet. And I think, I really think it's worth asking, like what, what could have been if that storyful model was actually given resources and, and more attention. Uh, so eventually like Google sort of dissolved that partnership and storyful went to, went to news core. Um, but at the time that was, uh, they were like leaning in a little bit on this and, and, and the storyful team was actually curating videos that would, that YouTube would try to promote more and, and put on its homepage and into algorithm. So at this Arab spring moment, you really get a sense that this is when, you know, these warring parties start to see YouTube as a platform to game, you know, they're going to kind of have their information battle on YouTube as a platform, all kinds of things you know, start to appear in the book at this point, um, guns, FPS, Russia, uh, the beginning of mentions of PewDiePie, um, a character who lurks in the background uh, throughout this book. And then you, you have these other characters, of course, who come onto the stage, uh, interestingly, right around the same time, uh, Jonah Peretti, who you describe as a weedy hipster uh, who ran a fledging website called BuzzFeed, uh, who's on the same page in the same paragraph um, as the emergence of Russia Today on YouTube. My apologies to the description, Jonah. Only minute with the utmost respect. Um, yeah, this was it. I think this was a really, uh, um, and this was a you know the, the, the era of like uh, rose-colored glasses and the internet and and a lot of like. Um, you know, what was someone describing in the book is like Internet of Awesome. And I think the Arab Spring was certainly part of that. This, you know, this is before Benghazi uh, and things t- took a turn and took a turn for YouTube for, for sure. And uh, you mentioned Russia Today. I thought it was really like there was this to take a step back a little bit like YouTube did like a very intentional push to, to expand internationally. Uh, with Google pushing them internationally and, and expanding and, and a lot of this. I think hasn't really been fully understood. And um, you know, they went into countries and they like really wanted to get people making videos in, in native languages where they didn't have, and, and some kind of like didn't have like Pakistan didn't have an office. And so, you know, Pakistan like blocked out YouTube for a while um, certainly didn't have like moderation teams or like people familiar with, with the politics and like the actual cultures and, and languages. And, and yet like, were very strong and encouraging people to, to to upload videos, and and Russia Today is just a great example. Like I, th- I think YouTube and Google at the time like didn't even think much of it. Right? There's Robert Kinsel, who's now their chief business officer at YouTube, um, went went on Russia Today. Uh, you had you, I think you you and Paul discussed this in your in your prior podcast. You know, I don't like I didn't talk to like they did like YouTube didn't let me talk to Robert for this book. Someone who worked with him <laughs> told me you know. Like he probably they send him on this trip to Russia and they're like, here are the top like performing, you know, YouTube channels that you need to meet with and and like didn't think much of it. And at that time it was like Russia Today was this was leaning in on digital on YouTube. And like for YouTube, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Like YouTube who spent so much of its life being like trying to convince traditional media of the value of YouTube saw a big media operation like going all in on YouTube. And that was like super exciting. And like, you know, this was before 2016. So we can excuse some of their naivete, but like didn't even process sort of the the political implications of that. 
So there's so much here, and I would push the reader towards the book, of course, uh, or the listener towards the book, of course, in order to get more. But, you know, you go from this period of loose change uh, in 9-11, truth or conspiracies in ISIS, uh, which gives way to Stefan Molino and Donald Trump. And are you, it's like, who are my favorite of that Motley Crue? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, we're, we're sort of in a different patch at this point. I mean, it's, it, this is when the yeah. kind of dark side starts to become clear. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this too. Like one of the interesting things when I, when I was reporting this was um, Milo and sort of Breitbart army. And, and there's been a lot about written about that, like the rise of the alt, right? One of the strange like subcultures, uh, the storylines in, in YouTube was this um, called the skeptics. If you, re- if you recall this, like a this this big moment for uh, atheists on YouTube, um, like 2010, 2011, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and like people, not not that they were like uploading YouTube videos, but people would upload videos of Christopher Hitchens and then like discover sort of the algorithmic tweet, like Christopher Hitchens destroys creationists, right? Like that that sort of thing. And like, and, and that became this... Um, you know, so much of of YouTube is just like pattern matching, like this this really interesting uh, game where that that's what how that's how YouTube's algorithms work, and that's how YouTubers work. They're like, oh, this thing works. I'm going to test this. Oh, I'm, so I saw someone else doing this. Like this thing's taking off on the site. I'm going to do this, and and there's this really interesting like flow there that that leads in these unexpected directions. And and one of them, and and um, I'm sure there are people that have studied this and, and gone more in depth about this transition of like in the atheist online atheist community there was this big split and like a one consequence of that is like that there was just so much more misogyny uh and it turned on like this is a throwback phrase but like social justice warriors right like that sort of uh, early before trump's election this was a big moment on on the internet of like this sort of engaging fight um between feminists um and and people to oppose them you know i I briefly touch on gamergate which is this explosive moment in in internet culture and our sort of modern politics which people associate with with reddit and i think you know youtube actually played a a a not uh, insignificant part of that and a a major reason is that you you know youtube was at the time and still is like the only place where where uh, online creators can make money and and you talked about this on, on prior podcasts with you know like so sort of like what incentives for for uh, some of these creators to to make videos like money was clearly one of them um, and I and I think that like this was a blind spot for YouTube for a long time but like misogyny and a lot of these battles and, and early on it was like creationists were like this interesting target and then it became social justice warriors there's always sort of like a and then it became YouTube itself right. <laughs> um, but there's always like a um, uh, with the videos that tend to do well and like uh, have these tensions, like like any type of, of, of media narrative uh, and have like really good foils um, and like women on the Internet became this like fantastic foil uh, for a lot of uh, of YouTubers. And it didn't get now it's now it's having this new wave of attention. But for a long time, it was just sort of like part of this. It was just part of, like, it was sort of treated as, like, this is inevitable and this is part of the internet and there's nothing we can do about it. There are so many different interesting anecdotes in here. And in characters, of course, who come in, one that stuck out to me was the scene of a, a bus ride that uh, Guillaume Chaslow took in Paris, uh, where he encounters a man watching videos about a, a 
purported plot to exterminate a quarter of the world's population. That also struck me as happening at a kind of moment in time, which says something about where YouTube was at the moment and its role in society. Yeah, I think there was um, maybe, I mean, like I, I, the history of, of sort of conspiracies and, and, and misinformation on YouTube is, is a really fascinating one. And the book um, touches on this a, a little bit. You know, there was, like, you mentioned Loose Change, which was the um, sort of really early 9-11 truther video that actually took off, I think, on Google video of all places. And then, um, you know, people I talked to at early YouTube were sort of like, we would just kind of uh, assume that viewers would be able to, to like sort out that this was like the viewers would have enough of a um, sensibility and like intelligence to to like identify this as as, a, as bunk right as conspiracy. Um, I think that the nine eleven truthers was like it didn't it, it, at the time there was no sense that like this has any harm. You know, one sort of interesting thing I discovered in the book, and I'm, I'm curious to people who read it what they thought of it. There was one point. So YouTube had, had built up around this. They were starting to build this creator team. Like they were kind of late to. They were the first um, platform on the internet to pay online creators, but they were relatively late to actually coming around to like their commercial potential, right? It was like, oh, we're going to have maybe a few that'll be big hits, but they're like a little, like they're amateur. Advertisers aren't going to get behind it. We really need like A-listers in Hollywood. And then around like 2014, they're like, oh, wow, these like YouTube stars are actually bigger than Hollywood stars in many ways. Maybe this is our business, right? Um, and so they started assigning people to to work with creators and come help them shoot video and like, come up with all sorts of teams um, and, and directions, working with beauty creators and video games, right? Um, and one person told me that, you know, they, they like had this idea that they saw this, all these paranormal videos uh, on YouTube, which is sort of like some of it's like the Discovery Channel, right? Um, History Channel. We see this on TV, but on YouTube, it's like got a much more of a YouTube flavor. Like, why don't we work with these creators and sort of build like a effectively like a vertical around paranormal, which in some ways you can go like, oh my, you know, oh my God, like flat earth, right? Like, this would be YouTube sort of uh, embracing this um, what ended up being total like, cons- conspiracy theories. Uh, I think the other hand is like, what if YouTube had done that, right? What if it had leaned in um, and paid more attention to so sort of fringe of the site, but but like these like these sort of strange worlds, like videos around, around paranormal activity and aliens and UFOs, like if it had a little bit more like handholding and touch, I think there's there's an argument that um, it could have seen the issues with, with say, like flat earthers or QAnon earlier. Like, you know, who's to say like they would have anything would have done differently? But I thought that was a really telling example of this like thread in the story that I try to drive, which is like YouTube is just Google is like not good at managing people, uh, and then typically like for a variety of reasons like avoided sort of hands-on management of their creator class and then had like real consequences um for these these naughty issues around um, misinformation and this was like a really interesting example there there's this sense that in the background this business model chugs forward no matter really what decisions youtube makes that people make mistakes you know Things come and go. I was reminded of the phenomenon of multi-channel networks, for instance, and how big a deal those seemed just a few years ago. But YouTube just keeps getting bigger, keeps growing. Its creators keep uh, earning and and things plot ahead. Yeah, not without 
major crises and and you have some of the, the like um key moments in the book where or when these these collisions happen right where youtube had a extended brand advertising boycott and and put in a lot of resources to to fix those like um adjacency problems and uh we saw was it two summers ago i think when facebook advertisers uh, boycotted or sorry advertisers boycott facebook around hate speech as far as i know they did not leave youtube at all um which is remarkable i think speaks to just how lousy like Facebook's reputation was, but I think YouTube had kind of been through the ringer um, with this in 2017 and put a lot of, uh, a lot of pieces in place. And there was like a big internal effort and, and you could, I, the criticism here is like, they put a lot, I think a lot more resources and effort into like combating this because it was critical for their business than say dealing with some other issues that, that critics have pointed out for years, like around that we talked about like harassment of women you know, I think later on, they, they dealt more with like um, health misinformation during the pandemic, but like people have been pointing that out for a long time. But anyway, sorry, they did put in a lot of resources. Like Google is exceptionally good at, at monetization. And yeah, it never really slowed down. I mean, I, the, a lot of the book deals with, with kids, kids content too, which we haven't touched on, but that's um, by far the, like the top channels on YouTube are, are designed for toddlers and for kids. Uh, and that's like unrelenting, even with this sort of new competition from 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 TikTok. Um, and then, you know, we're doing a podcast here like YouTube's now currently under this big push into podcasting. And like, I wouldn't be surprised if they made it very easy ways for like one click upload your podcast as a, as a YouTube video. Uh, and, you know, podcasts, that's just like hours and hours of hours and hours of content that are, that are going to be added to, to an already gigantic corpus. There are so many subplots and side stories and uh, minor characters who walk in and off the stage in this book. Um, and we don't have time to talk about them all. Everything from the Google walkout to Christchurch in the pandemic. You've mentioned uh, health misinformation. You you know take us through moments like the murder of George Floyd on through to the January 6th insurrection. And you kind of at that point, I guess, leave us with you know, this sort of question that seems to be, I guess, still unresolved, which is, are the problems on YouTube a reflection of society's problems? Uh, or to what extent is YouTube uh, playing a role in exacerbating uh, some of the dynamics in, in politics and culture, not just in the United States, but, but also abroad? Um, and there's a phrase that you mention in here that apparently has, had become popular in Silicon Valley. Don't blame the mirror. Uh, yeah, I love that one. Yeah, it's a really, I think that's a, it's, it's, it's a worthwhile question in part because I do think that, that people have to understand that's like a sentiment ag- across the company, you know, and I, there, you mentioned uh, Guillaume Cheslow, the, the former engineer who's, who's uh, now doing a lot of work around uh, algorithmic transparency. You know, one thing he told me is like when he initially sort of brought some of his findings about conspiracy theories to people at YouTube, they're like, yeah, well, people watch it, right? Like who, who's, it's not our fault. Who are we to, to tell people what to watch and what not to watch? Which I think is sure valid. And if you if you like assume that that's the case, then like, but YouTube does tell people what to watch. Like YouTube does do programming, which is I think one of the points I try to hit the book is like YouTube does dictate not just what people watch, but what videos get made. Like that's the sort of this the other side of the algorithm that people don't talk about a lot. There's been a lot of interesting conversations about radicalism and rabbit holes on YouTube, but I think that's What's equally interesting is like what type of videos are made are dictated by the way that YouTube sets its um, that its its algorithms and its decisions, right? Um, and and so in that way they are 
programming um, and they're not like a mirror to society, but they're a, they're a gigantic and powerful media programmer um, in this like relatively opaque, uh, not relatively, this outright like very opaque way. And so I think that the, the mirror argument doesn't really hold water in, in part for that reason. Um, second, you know, if you're going to be a reflection of society, like you, you can't also be a $20 billion a year advertising platform that just like really work, right? Like Susan Wojcicki at one point in 2018 was like, we're kind of like a library, right? Which is like a preposterous notion. If you think about it, like a library is not a for-profit, a gigantic advertising institution, but but it's also really like, I think gets into the mindset a little bit, both that this is how Google defends itself, but this is how Google thinks about itself. Another interesting um, and important thing not to, to, to forget is that YouTube's part of Google. Google thinks about like indexing the web. And I think a lot of the way that YouTube has approached its business and, and a lot of uh, problems around misinformation and, and propaganda and speech is the way that like the search engine works too, right? Like think, you know, they like, borderline content this is really like basically like down like putting it on like page 12 of google search right no one goes there and i think that's a really valuable tool that that facebook and twitter don't necessarily have youtube other tool and fascinating one which we haven't really talked too much about is demonetization right like youtube can take away or reduce someone's ability to make money in a platform and there's all sorts of problems with that yeah the, the mere argument is is telling um because it, it reveals how the have a, a company thinks about itself, but I do genuinely believe that it sort of gives them cover for uh, a lot of the um, economic incentives that they're responsible for. And you do take us on that trajectory from Larry Page going on about neural networks at a TED conference uh, on through to the time, I suppose, YouTube is decomposing, you know, what happened in the 2020 election, stop the seal, et cetera. There seems to be a sense from the book, from the folks that you talk to there, that they're satisfied that they've fixed the algorithms to some extent, that they're now uh, not promoting false claims uh, in, in quite the way that perhaps they were in the past. Do you think they're kind of somewhat, uh, I don't know, resting on their laurels at the moment? Uh, I think you know, part of that is a little bit of like a really savvy political strategy where, you know, YouTube is, um, as you talked about in this, this pod, like, does not get the scrutiny that Facebook and Twitter, in some ways, like doesn't even get the scrutiny that TikTok gets right now. Um, but that's that's a little bit separate, given the Chinese company. But but it's because YouTube is really good at like staying out of these, literally just not participating in these these debates. Uh, I I do think that they, I would say, competently, like they they realize they've made a lot of, and they have made a lot of changes since since 2019, right? Certainly since 2016, 2017. I think that they're like, we have the structures and mind you, like almost at every turn of the, of the crises they've said, like, you know, sometimes it was like, we're putting in the, the structures in place. Now it's sort of like, we have the structures in place. Like they have the machinery that sort of, they have, you know, like the literal machinery where they'll say like some, I forget the stat, but it's like something like on order close to hundred percent of uh, the, the video violated videos are taken down, but with machine learning alone, like doesn't even have to deal with the, a human screener, like very few people watch it, relatively speaking, although we don't have exact numbers. Um, they have these systems in place to like downrank videos of borderline and and like all these sort of tools. I think there's there is a sense that like, okay, now we have the guardrails in place and and now we can kind of we can we can handle a lot that's thrown at us. And I think that's I mean the, their response time to be fair has gotten much faster. Uh, and at times in the past they like spent uh, days or weeks 
of laboring over these um, decisions. I, I think the like the the nature of the problems are getting more interesting, like, are changing and getting more interesting. And like outside the U.S. is a really interesting example. You know, Russia, uh, India, I think is fascinating. Like India is YouTube's biggest market, and you know, you have like the the and you talked about this, but like you know, they're so now just because of the way they put these protocols in place, like it's a very different company than it was when it fought tooth and nail to like keep videos up that governments wanted down. Now it's sort of like, okay, we like, there's much more willing to take these videos down in order to continue like, smooth operations in a place like India and avoid any controversies. And they're more willing to say like, moderate to, to appease something like the, the Indian BJP, which I think does have like very co- real consequences for the, and then the book doesn't really get into this too much because there's only so, so much space, but like India uh, is a really fascinating test case. There's no TikTok there. So YouTube is, that's one of the reasons that YouTube is massive. Um, you know, I've talked to people there that like they have staff there, but like you got, you know, dozens of languages and all sorts of complicated um, issues around how do you define like caste discrimination and hate speech and these things that that I people need to have admitted that they are like not still not prepared to handle. Mark, there's so much in this book. We could spend another hour going through the history and all the specifics of uh, YouTube's evolution of uh, of this problem. Uh, you know, the extent to which the company may or may not be uh, organized to deal with problems abroad. But I want to ask you, maybe just stepping back from it, you know, you paint this picture of a, a sort of hulking beast uh, uh, and just an enormous uh, chaotic entity that makes an enormous amount of money that perhaps no one can control, perhaps no one can really get their minds around uh, all of what's going on with YouTube and, and certainly couldn't control it. You even suggest that uh, Susan Wojcicki could perhaps not even uh, truly steer the thing, uh, at least certainly not quickly uh, if she chose a particular direction. Does that mean also from your perspective that Congress, the FTC, Europe through its DSA, any democratic mechanism, can you imagine anyone in a position of sort of governance getting their heads around YouTube? You know, one like hot take uh, alert, I guess. Um, the one place that, that uh, at least in the US, that regulators have actually gone after big tech is the FTC with YouTube's uh, violation of the children's online privacy law. So that was 2019. Um, it was at the time like a record fine. It was chump change for Google, but it was um, significant for the agency to uh, accuse uh, YouTube of knowingly, knowingly violating um, online privacy rules and, and serving like targeted ads to, to children under 13. That has had consequential changes in the way that YouTube kids and YouTube operates with, with kids media, right? So they, like, the site is basically, YouTube is like split into two right now. I don't know, most viewers might not know this, but like you have a video that's either marked as made for kids or not. And if it's marked as made for kids, can't serve targeted ads, uh, has a lot more restrictions on it, um, you know, with the, and this is partially because of the FTC and partially because of like, you know, the sort of thing we've been talking about, like advertising pressure, like I think this in, like this is a particular issue where people at YouTube like have kids and they're like, wow, we, okay, we actually, you know, we actually have the world's biggest kids entertainment service. Like maybe we should be, be more thoughtful about how we, how we operate this. But I think it's a really interesting case study in that it's, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the people at the FTC, like some of the FTC haven't, didn't like get the sort of changes that they want. Um, and, but YouTube was uh, 
got criticized for a long time for being like overtly commercial, like toy unboxing videos, like um, some of the most popular content on YouTube was effectively like just a nonstop uh, ad, right? Uh, in, in, a, in a world where like TV uh, and like FCC actually regulates TV, so it can't do that. It has to have an educational programming. I mean, YouTube is moving that direction in a very YouTube way, right? It's like sort of saying it's encouraging algorithms to like get kids to do things outside and like make educational videos. Like, I mean, arguably how, how much it's doing that at scale. But so, yeah, so one, I do think that there was some like the one time that the regulators in the U.S. actually took action against uh, YouTube. I think it's had some market change uh, in the way the site operates, not just around the issue of, of online privacy and, and ad targeting, but in like some of these broader important issues about what type of YouTube content is made and, and viewed uh that being said like i don't you know and i'm not an expert on on dc and in policy um it doesn't you know it doesn't seem like a doj case is going to break up force google to spin off youtube it doesn't you know i think it might have some consequences for like the way that their ads business ad tech operations work and and um you know YouTube, google's already moving in that direction and sort of anticipating that those changes i actually think apple's had a bigger impact on uh, YouTube and other social networks and their advertising model than uh, and in the DOJ or any regulator ever will. Are there any kind of final thoughts you have on this company as you kind of step back from the book and as you th- sort of think about how to cover it going forward? I mean, you know, one thing we've talked a little bit about here, of course, is, is TikTok um, as a phenomenon, um, which I suppose many people will wonder about. Is, is that ultimately going to disrupt somehow YouTube's dominance yeah it's a really you know youtube is um certainly they they putting so many resources into and i'm sure anyone who uses the youtube app can see this like their their shorts which is their competitor tiktok like they're not doing this it's not like instagram that's sort of remaking its entire product i think youtube is um has the benefit of have like a built-in audience um and is a little more a little savvier about that kind of stuff but but they are they are certainly driving a lot more towards shorts. I think shorts um, are going to have their own content moderation and in, in policy implications that we haven't quite explored. I, I think like one thing I'm just like landing in there that, that um, you know, is that so much of, in, so it's interesting, like so much of the YouTube sort of response to a lot of the pressure they've had in the past few years has been like, we're going to start having more responsible, it's a word responsibility, right? And like, we're going to promote like sort of valuable whether it's like uh, you know um, legitimate news sources around uh, COVID, or just like sort of creators that, that don't get them into into like trouble with advertisers or politicians, I think they can still operate that with shorts. But like the the thing about shorts is it really gives, in, in some ways, it gives you as a viewer, you have like more feedback because you're you're flipping through your phone a lot more and you're seeing a lot more videos than you would watch like a twelve minute YouTube video, right? But in other ways, there's like less mechanisms for like um, us giving like actual feedback to if, if that makes sense right like youtube has started to run these surveys and that's like something that they're plugging into the to their algorithm as far as like promotional videos and it almost becomes like there's this world in which like you tiktok is kind of driving this a bit more mindless consumption uh and so maybe that that's like where i i think you know part of the, the whole book is like a plea to pay attention to this uh oz behind the curtain of this really um powerful company and and in some ways like the shift toward I, I th- it'll be I think people will be talking a lot more about YouTube in, in its competition with TikTok, uh, but just this, like the way the structure of like the, the platform works, if we're like flipping through 
um, in at long clips. That's like a different way than, than engaging. Uh, and so I, yeah, I think it's sort of a plea for, you know, we, you talked about this a lot too. It's like YouTube is just not very transparent. And I think more and more pressure it has and, and more transparency is always has like good outcomes. Well, you've certainly done an enormous amount to reveal Oz. I don't know if that, uh, makes you the toto of the story, but, um, is this going to continue to be your beat? Are you going to keep looking at uh, YouTube going forward? Uh, is there another book in the future? Uh, I am actually taking a, a little bit of a sidestep. I'm certainly like looking at YouTube and Google. I'm starting to cover uh, climate tech actually with Bloomberg, um, which feels like an equally important, albeit very different uh, in the way that the technology is interacting with society and politics. So, but uh, that being said, you know, I think, uh, I still think YouTube's fascinating, and so we'll keep 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 tabs on it. Mark, thank you so much, and I would encourage folks to go out and read this book, which is on sale September sixth. Awesome! Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.